Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My guest this week is the Conservative MP for Wickham and Deputy Chair of the COVID Recovery Group, Steve Baker. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks very much indeed for having me on. Now, before we begin looking at Wednesday's budget and spending review announcements, I'd I'd like to ask you briefly about MP safety in the wake of the absolutely appalling murder of uh, Sir David Amos, which has highlighted just how dangerous public life can be. Have you feared for your safety as an MP? Not very often, no. Um, And I think we've got to be realistic. I'd like to see some proper statistics about the danger to MPs versus the danger to, say, police officers or ambulance drivers or indeed nurses in hospital, Um, because I imagine that it's routinely more dangerous for a nurse in A&E on Friday Friday night than it is for a member of parliament. So I I think we shouldn't get carried away. Um, And the members of parliament who have been murdered appear to have been murdered uh, by radical individuals in exceptional circumstances. Um, the, I have had a number of death threats. Uh, the people making them didn't take them very seriously, but the police did. Um, I was on the street once with a man who was absolutely quaking with rage, and he won't have known that I was worried that with his hands in his pockets, he might have had a knife in his hand. That's the only time I was really frightened. But no, I, we don't live in fear, um, and we do need to get on and see our constituents. Um, but the murder of, oh, sorry, I should say the killing of David Amos really was absolutely devastating to us all, partly because we all know it, it could have been us, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned there's some of the threats that uh, police officers, ambulance drivers and nurses do face. But what, what more do you think should be done to keep MPs safe and ensure things like constituency surgeries are kept as secure as possible? Well, it's very important to meet people by appointment, I think. I don't think one should have Mm -hmm. walk-ins. And there's a range of things can be done. So I have panic buttons and I have an alert button that I can use to summon help. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh, you know, other things have come up, like the idea of pre-screening people to check, to do a background check with the police, but I don't think that's a practical proposition for Mm -hmm. most people you know look overwhelmingly the people who come to see us are good and decent people often in desperate straits stuck in the bureaucracy or in desperate need and we don't we don't need them to have to come through airport style security and have a police background check and all the rest of it to see an mp um that is a risk we should just absorb i'm afraid so i don't think there is much more to be done if i'm honest but the police will continue to review it along with the house authorities but Let's face it, the police do know how to secure a member of parliament against a serious threat. 
you have to have two armed officers with you at all times, including sitting in a car outside your home. And that's a very, very expensive thing to do. And it's definitely disproportionate for the average backbencher. I mean, not even all members of the cabinet have such security, never mind other ministers and still less backbenchers. But if we were serious that there was a massive threat to MPs, well, then we'd each of us have to have two armed police officers at all times and a car to drive us around. And it's just not it's not even the beginning of a realistic prospect. So I'm afraid I do think that we have to absorb quite a lot of risk. But equally, I'm, I would just repeat, I don't think the risk that MPs face will turn out to be greater than that faced by nurses or police officers or firefighters or whatever. Well, let's move on now to look at the, the budget and spending review. Now, obviously, the parliamentary debate will scrutinise and examine the announcements until Tuesday. And I'm sure you and your colleagues will be going through the red book with a, a fine tooth comb. But w- yeah. what are your initial thoughts about what the Chancellor announced on Wednesday? Well, it's a, it's a big spending high taxing budget. Uh, it moves us substantially to the left, uh, whether that is because of coronavirus or because that's what Boris wanted to do anyway is a matter of debate. Um, I think that his idea of levelling up, though laudable, uh, always implied very high public spending. And you know that's what he wants to do. We made him prime minister. We stood as conservatives and we're going to have to vote for it. Um, but I'm very worried that... When you look at the trajectory of age-related spending and what that means for the public debt, it only heads in one direction. And I also believe, based on evidence from an economist called David B. Smith to the Treasury Committee, that we're already at and beyond the limits of taxation as of 2018. So put all these things together, it means that, oh, plus inflation, of course, if inflation doesn't just peak and drop off, the Bank of England will have to taper QE and raise rates. And bear in mind that through the pandemic, the amount of government borrowing and, and the amount of QE were broadly equivalent. In other words, although, although the Bank of England bought bonds so-called in the secondary market, not directly from government, effectively, all the money government borrowed, not quite all, but broadly speaking, the money that borrow, government borrowed uh, came from the Bank of England's uh, money creation. That's a very dangerous thing that can't go on. So we're in a, I think in a, I would say we're on very thin ice with very hot water underneath on this subject. It's a precarious position to be in. And I rather fear that if inflation stays in into the spring next year, we will find that by the time we get to the summer, we've, we're having a proper crisis in the public finances, which will have thoroughly disrupted Boris's spending plans. So that to me is the single greatest risk. Um, and the ideology that is going on at the moment is basically conservative pragmatism. It's not really socialism. It's Tory pragmatism. It's we've got the levers of state power. We're going to spend a lot of money to deal with things. And the big question for me is, can we afford it? So ba- based on all of that, then, what, what would you like to have heard the Chancellor announce that he, he didn't say in, in his speech? Well, in the end, what this country is going to have to have is taxes we can afford. And I would have liked to have seen that we, you know, he said he wanted, to, he wants to lower taxes. Well, I'm afraid he's actually got to lower taxes. Yeah. But it's too, it's too soon to be cancelling the national insurance levy. But, you know, what's our offer for young people? Young people who are desperate to save a deposit, never mind buy a house. Young people who will now be paying extra on their national insurance levy. Young people who've got their student loan to repay, which implies an extra high tax burden on them. We've got to be creating hope for young people. And that hope for young people, there's some stuff in there. I mean, we're going to be doing more to build houses on Brownsfield sites, and that's good. It's not, you know, there's plenty in there that that I do like. But 
conservatives used to believe that we left we should leave money in people's pockets for them to spend themselves and at the moment what is happening is age-related spending starting to bite particularly with social care so we've just reached out for higher taxes so I'm afraid if you're asking for a simple thing from, for, from me, I'm always going to be looking for lower taxes. Mm-hmm. But lower taxes means lower spending. And getting to lower spending in an era of uh, rising age-related spending is going to mean some quite difficult decisions about health and social care and pensions. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to find ways of making those decisions and carrying the public with us. And, and, and the, I think the key to carrying the public is to say to older people, this is about the future of your children and grandchildren because actually parents and grandparents really do care about their children and grandparents uh, grandchildren's uh, futures you know and 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 so if we've got a clear and honest offer that says this secures your grandchildren's futures then i think we'll be able to carry the public in a conservative direction and young people in particular have really been adversely affected throughout the whole of the, the pandemic and the impact of lockdown, most notably through, through education. And so something that was rumoured around the uh, the budget, but not announced by the Chancellor, was the idea of uh, lowering the rate of tuition fees and also lowering the threshold of repayments. Do, do you think that would have been the right measure for the government to recoup some of the huge expenditure throughout lockdown or is, is that just another thing that's going to hit the pockets of young people lowering the threshold at which student loans are repaid would just be such a devastating blow i mean it's already at not a very high level if i recall it's something like twenty-seven thousand something something pounds of income i mean there are plenty of people in this country would be glad to get up to twenty-seven thousand pounds i'm sure but it's not a high income it's still below the median um, so, you know, to, if one were to lower that threshold, I mean, I would be, oh, I mean, I feel my, I'm, I, I'm sickened inside thinking about it. You know, stuff's hard enough for young people already without, without putting an extra 9% tax on them at less than, you know, around, say, you know, well, under £27,000. It's, it's unthinkable. So um, I'm glad that was not done. Based on all this then, were you surprised at just how upbeat Rishi Sunak was during the speech, given the state of the nation's finances as a result of those numerous lockdowns and restrictions over the last 19 months? Well, no, I I wasn't surprised Mm -hmm. because actually there is a lot in uh, what Rishi said to be glad about. And obviously the Chancellor's got to do things that he's enthusing about because if he's not enthusing, who's going to be? Uh, And I I suppose if, if I seem deflated it is because I'm looking a bit further down the road and um, you know I'm a classical liberal conservative for a reason and that's because I think that classical liberal conservatism is the set of ideas which work and create a better happier more prosperous and freer future in which people can flourish more completely that's that's why I take this set of views so you know I wasn't surprised he was happy and optimistic he needed to be and if the plan works and levels up the country you know, 20 billion of R&D spending, that's huge. That really ought to deliver results. And not only in the biological sciences, where we've just had this huge success with vaccines, but also in things like fusion. And, you know, if we discover, really get fusion working rather, not so much discover, but get fusion working, producing electricity in abundance, that will completely transform the net zero debate. So, you know, there are things to be optimistic about. And uh, so I'm not surprised that Rishi was optimistic. We've already alluded to the the fact that you're you're deeply concerned about the the high levels of spending and similarly the the high levels of taxation. But 
you think the government's actually forgotten Margaret Thatcher's famous adage that there is no such thing as public money, there is only taxpayers' money? No, I don't think we've forgotten any of those things. And actually, when I made a speech in the House of Commons, you know, from the front bench below the aisle, turning around to look at my colleagues saying we must rediscover conservatism, mm. I could see the looks in my colleagues' faces and they're yearning to rediscover that kind of conservatism. Of course they are. Mm. Yearning, you can see they, they just wish that's where we were. They, they've not enjoyed taking away people's freedom even to leave their homes. They're not enjoying higher taxes. Um, and I believe that they would follow a leader who was willing to make the tough choices to deliver that kind of agenda. Um, but until Boris decides to do it, uh, it won't happen. Another key part of the, the budget, of course, is, well, it wasn't directly addressed in this budget, but a wider theme throughout the government is, of course, tackling climate change. And another big announcement in the, the announcement on Wednesday was the cut to domestic air passenger duty. D does uh -huh. that particular announcement send the right message to the world on climate change when it's just days before the COP26 summit in Glasgow? Well, it's a pro-union measure. And, mm. uh, you know, we do need to hold the United Kingdom together. Uh, and of course, airlines have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. So I certainly support it. I mean, it's a tax cut. Of course, I'm going to support it. Yeah. But when we look at... COP26. COP26 at the moment does look highly likely to be a failure in its, even its own terms. Mm. Anyone can go onto ourworldindata.org and have a look at who emits carbon dioxide. And they will find that if we act unilaterally, it won't do a bit of good and we'll have spent all the money that we would need to spend on adaptation. So unless COP26 delivers real change and real action by China, by India, you know, by by the USA, by big emitters. And by the way, Biden seems to be going empty handed to this conference. Well, there's no point us doing unilateral action. It will just leave us poorer, colder, and less, a bit, less able to adapt to change as it comes. So um, I can see how some people will criticize him, but I, I, actually I'm in favor of holding the union together. And I look to COP26 thinking it will fail. And um, after it's failed, we need to change our priority to adaptation. So what, what is it specifically about COP26 then that you think it, it will make it a failure? China and India are not going to go along with the practical actions that need to be taken. Um, they need the economic growth. They're not going to agree to do the things which Boris currently looks mm. like he wants to do. The urgent, very urgent, very expensive action is not where China's going to be. They're going to, they need, they need abundant, inexpensive, secure energy. And they're going to get it from coal and from gas. And they're not going to move in the way that people would like. And actually, we, we all need abundant, affordable, secure energy supplies, or we'll just end up living in poverty. And I don't think that's what most people want. Well, you've, you mentioned there about the idea of this uh, air passenger duty cut to be a, a pro-union measure. And much has been made about the increase in investment to the devolved administrations through bonnet formula allocations and uh, other additional investments to the, the regions of the UK. But is the Treasury simply throwing money at the problem of keeping the union together rather than simply making a compelling case for why it should remain as it is? Well, I think we're doing both, aren't we? I mean, I think that Boris Johnson is the minister for the union. He created that post. I don't think he's delegated it to anyone. Um, 
it might have delegated it to Michael Gove. I'd have to go back and check. Mm-hmm. But even the fact that I can't say tells tells you that they do need to be doing more of that compelling case. But the case for the United Kingdom as a country is compelling. You know, we're a geographically bounded region uh, on, on the island, plus, of course, Northern Ireland, with long-standing historical ties together, continuous traditional and intellectual development for hundreds of years. Uh, uh, and we should stick together. It will work for us. So we do need to do both. We need to make both the emotional and the rational and the practical case uh, for, for staying together. Um, just throwing money at a problem won't work. Um, but we've, we've got to make being in the union attractive, particularly to Scotland. And of course, with maintaining the union, you also have to factor in the the union within England as well and the regional development as well. And regional devolution has been a big part of this and also as a part of the wider levelling up agenda as well. Mm. And the, the Chancellor awarded billions of pounds to towns across the UK in this new levelling up fund. But there still isn't really that much clarity on what levelling up is. Now, I've, I've interviewed a number of your Conservative colleagues on, on this programme, and each one has given me a different definition of what levelling up is. So I, I'm going to pass that question on to you now and just ask you, what is levelling up? Well, the Prime Minister made a speech about what levelling up was, and even after the Prime Minister made a speech, people were still asking what it was. But I think the point that he's making is he wants to make everywhere much more prosperous. Uh, in a nutshell, that, that is it. Too many parts of our country have been left behind and he wants to make everywhere more prosperous. And that's fantastic. And that's what I want too. But I would just observe that even South Buckinghamshire in High Wycombe, which would think in most people's minds would be a byword for prosperity. You know, we've just been found to be the most food insecure place in England or in the UK, I think, by Sheffield University. And... You know, we need levelling up too. And what does that mean? Well, that actually means more, better, higher paying jobs. It means less expensive housing. And um, it it means people better able to deal with the problems that they're inevitably going to face in their lives. You know, some people are going to lose jobs, change work. Marriages are going to fail. And people need savings cushions to fall back on. But, you know, a lot of the problems we face are interrelated. So why would you save, for example, when interest rates are so low? But, you know, people end up into high cross credit and the spiral of despair that follows from excessive indebtedness because they haven't got a cushion of savings to fall back on. It's very difficult uh, to afford a house in my area and so on. So what the point I'm making is that even Wickham needs levelling up. But Hambledon Valley doesn't especially need levelling up, except on broadband and the sewerage treatment plants and so on. But everywhere's got its needs. Um, And that's part of the human condition. So long and short of it is Boris wants to make everybody more prosperous. He wants to deal with people being left behind. And um, I think that's what he means by levelling up. But until it's actually been done and made real by Michael Gove, I think we'll all still be asking. Much of the focus around levelling up is centred around investing primarily in northern areas. And you've just mentioned there's some of the concerns you have in your own constituency. So are you worried that that perhaps those more traditionally conservative seats, are mainly in the south, are actually going to be overlooked by the government in favour of these red wall areas? Well, I, I am, of course, concerned that we might be overlooked and we can't afford to be. You know, Wickham needs a new hospital. Our infrastructure is out of date and I will be making the case for a new hospital in Wickham. Um, 
We've got, I don't think, I, I can't avoid admitting, we've got a motorway, we've got an airport, we've got a good rail service, we've got plenty of potholes need fixing, we've got plenty of pavements need sorting out. Um, so that there, there is plenty to be done. Um, but yeah, of course I'm concerned about that. And I'm also concerned that better off voters in Wickham will feel that they're paying for spending that is advantaging other places. But that's partly inherent in the modern welfare state that it's a transfer system. Let's uh, move on a little bit to look at uh, your appearance at the Institute of Economic Affairs fringe event at the Conservative Party conference, which uh, it made made a number of headlines. And one comment that you made that's really stood out to me was you said, we are all socialists now. Now, I was was in the think tank for that event and, you know, the the classically liberal leaning audience seemed to laugh it off a bit, but it's it's quite a stark assessment to make. What, What did you mean by that comment? Well, it was, of course, a tongue-in-cheek comment. Um, but in a sense, classical liberals for 100 years, I think, have, have felt that socialism, social democracy was the dominant ideology. And, and so it has been. You know, if you, look at, if you look at the trajectory of state spending for 100 years, prior to the First World War, it was down about 10 12% of GDP, two big spikes of two world wars, and then it stays up, broadly speaking, 38 40% of GDP after the Second World War, depending how you measure GDP. But the point is that there's a low level before the First World War and then a much higher level around the limits, around and beyond the limits of taxation after the Second World War. And really the point I was driving at is that the dominant ideology of our time is state state interventionism, the so-called third way, not the nationalisation of the means of production, which is planning and socialism, but heavy state interventionism. To put it another way, what I meant was, this is not a crisis of laissez-faire liberalism because we haven't had laissez-faire liberalism for over 100 years. You know, if you ask yourself the question, has the state been too small? Has it legislated too little? Has it intervened too little in business and personal and private life? Has it taxed too little? Has it borrowed too little? Has money been too tight and interest rates too high? The, the questions answer themselves. And, and, and the idea that this is a crisis of markets and freedom doesn't bear a moment's scrutiny against the historic data. And, and really, that's a longer answer to what I was getting. At, and that was the main theme of what I said. I don't want conservatives and classical liberals to make the mistake of thinking we've got something to apologise for when our present situation evolves into a deeper crisis. We've got nothing to apologise for because our ideas aren't being tried. So given that, is the Conservative Party still Conservative? Well, yes, but it's an older and different kind of conservatism, the sort of uh, conservatism of, uh, well, Chamberlain and others, you know, that, 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 you know, it, it is the kind of big state paternalist conservatism of yesteryear. Mm-hmm. Not, it's not the conservatism of the relatively <laughs> uncharacteristic period of, of Thatcher and Lawson, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the irony is that the, the Conservative Party that conservatives yearn for is the Conservative Party of Thatcher and Lawson, which, by the way, saved our country from socialism. I mean, talking to people of my parents' generation about what it was like in the 70s and what kind of future we faced, it was ruinous. And Thatcher and Lawson and others turned it round. Um, But then what's happened is the Conservative Party has subsequently relapsed into its managerial, big state, paternalist norm, and that is what I think we're currently seeing. So I, I don't seriously think Boris Johnson is a socialist. I think, and certainly Rishi Sunak is a free market conservative, uh, and so is Liz Truss. But somehow we keep doing things we hate. And really the point of my IEA interview was to say, we've got to stop doing the things that we hate. 
why do we hate doing them? We hate them because we hate doing big state high taxing things because we know they're wrong. We know they don't lead to prosperity. And yet for some reason we're doing them anyway. And the reason that we're doing them anyway is twofold. It's Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. And, you know, Michael Gove is a power politician as well. He's a neoconservative, not a classical liberal from my point of view. And so, you know, I don't want to be too ideological. I want to be very practical. But unfortunately, ideas inform action, or perhaps fortunately, ideas inform action. And the idea in Boris Johnson and Michael Gove's head is that they can successfully wield state power to make everybody's lives better. And in the end, that is a fundamentally socialist idea. So to come back to the origin, by saying we're all socialists now, what I was trying to do was deliberately to provoke this conversation. What, what is it that we believe? When we're acting in power, in politics and government, what is it that we believe? And if we believe that government's been too small and etc., then obviously making government bigger might be the answer. But if we recognise that government's been too big for too long, spent too much money, borrowed too much money, had too much easy credit and debased the currency, well, then maybe what we should do is conservative economic policy, which is limited government, lower taxes, balanced budgets and sound money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think conservatives listening to what I'm saying and classical liberals will spot that I am talking about normal conservative classical liberal economic policy. And in the longer run, that is what we will have to go to because this big state, high tax, high spend approach, I believe, is bound not to work for the same reasons that socialism doesn't work. Well, one of the main reasons for this big shift towards a a larger state, big government, it simply is is lockdown. And it's something you've been very critical of. And as you say, you're you're in the classical liberal tradition. So the the idea of state imposed uh, restrictions and lockdown really is is anathema to your core values as as it is to mine. But when when you delivered your, your speech in Parliament, when the Coronavirus Act was being introduced, you were visibly moved by the prospect of lockdown and you, you even went as far as to have a tear in your eye at one point how, how yeah, do you help that, I'm afraid. No. pardon i could not help that i'm yeah. afraid i'm a man of passionate belief in mm. freedom and virtue mm. and society being voluntary relationships mm. with other people so facing the prospect of the negation of all of that of mm. course i felt great mm. emotion passion and fury welling mm. up within me so how how do you rationalise that in your mind enough to vote on an act like the, the Coronavirus Act back in March 2020? Well, so first of all, if when anybody looks at my voting record, and some people look at it very critically, but you'll, you'll, I think you'll find that I haven't actually voted for lockdown measures. The closest I've come to voting for major restrictions on people's liberty Um, is uh, voting for the self-isolation regulations, which I did think were reasonable. But the original passage of the Coronavirus Act, you know, it went through second reading without division. The House did not divide to vote on it. Um, I voted for renewal once. That's because Graham Brady and I had done a deal with the government that we would get votes in advance. And that did what uh, votes in advance on major restrictions. And that was a price worth paying. But again, people listening to this very often are critical of me because they don't understand that our lockdown was implemented not under the Coronavirus Act, but under the Public Health Act 1984. And this has caused endless, quite unjustified fury. The Coronavirus Act 
has now been stripped of its most egregious provisions. And that's why recently when it was renewed, we did not divide the house. It's because there's, although there are still some serious provisions in it, like the capacity to close ports, mostly now it's about letting NHS staff go back to work from retirement. It's about paying statutory sick pay early. But the egregious provisions about gatherings and, uh, and detaining individuals, they've all been stripped out of the Coronavirus Act. The sword of Damocles still dangling over our heads which could still confine us to our homes at a moment's notice on the stroke of a pen of the health secretary is the 1984 Public Health Act, which is why I've been demanding reform of that act. So when you ask for the rationality, well, the first thing is you have to ask, well, what is the question I'm being asked to vote on? And the Coronavirus Act, although it did have some egregious provisions in it, a lot of it was seen to be necessary at the time. Remember, at the time, we weren't sure how many people would die. And at the time I was having conversations with my local authority and the local resilience forum along the lines of, we doubled mortuary capacity and then we doubled it again. And we've got to tell you, Steve, we think we now need to double mortuary capacity again. We think the crematoriums are gonna run out of capacity, but great news, we're gonna have enough burial capacity. Then my Muslim population which was about one in six of my voters was up in arms that people might be cremated when they wanted to be buried. And actually, I had to ex explain to them that that is not the danger. The danger is that people like our Hindu population who wish to be cremated might end up buried against their wishes. But this was the actual conversation that we might not have. And we didn't know at the time that we really might not have space for all the bodies. Now, when you're actually a serious politician, an actual elected person, and you don't know, if somebody puts an act of parliament before you, which enables you to deal with all the bodies, you've got to vote for it because you can't have a situation where you can't deal with all the bodies. So everything's obviously moved on a lot since then. The modelling's been proven time and again to be wrong. Uh, but back in that March, you know, there was really no choice but to let the Coronavirus Act go through. But again, I would say to people, you were not locked down at home under the Coronavirus Act. You were locked down at home under the 1984 Public Health Act, which has not been reformed. And that's why I want reform. Please write to your MP demanding reform. Did you think the government would go as far as it did in making intrusions in our lives when we were faced with the prospect of lockdown and restrictions in the Coronavirus Act, but also within the Public Health Act? The extent of lockdowns and restrictions was far beyond my worst expectations. I mean, I was in the chamber for the passage of the Coronavirus Act when Boris Johnson went on television and said, you must stay at home. Of course, he said that before the act, before the law actually came into effect a couple of days later, and it started being enforced on the prime minister's word, not on the basis of law. And that <clears throat> itself was a breach of the rule of law. We shouldn't have the police enforcing ministerial diktat. They should only enforce the law. But that, that's a very important point that everyone's glossed over. But again, people were in fear of their lives. So when the prime minister said, you must stay at home, and it, the idea was to save very large numbers of lives, you can see why police officers did what they did. But no, I, I could never have dreamt that two friends would go for a walk with a coffee and face potentially criminal sanctions for doing so because they had a coffee. I couldn't have dreamt that people would be harassed by police officers for sitting on a park bench. Um, it's just so outrageous. Um, the question is whether such outrageous restrictions of our freedoms, normal ability to go about ordinary things was proportionate to the threat we faced. And I think the answer is no. Um, 
but equally, I recognise that Boris Johnson's not a bad man. This is not. This has not been sinister. I reject all conspiracy theories about this. Boris was trying to save lives and do the right thing. And what, one of the biggest threats to our, our freedom that we face at the moment is the prospect of vaccine passports. What, why is the government keeping this measure in reserve for Plan B when a report by the House of Commons Public Accounts and Constitutional Affairs Select Committee has openly said that there isn't enough evidence to justify their introduction? Well, I am absolutely implacably opposed to vaccine passports, COVID status certification. I think it would be outrageous to require people to certify their medical status to go about even going to a nightclub. should be their personal responsibility and choice. Um, But I think the reason the government is keeping it in the toolkit uh, is partly because there seems to be an emerging global consensus that it's one of the things we could do. And you have to ask why that is. And I'm afraid it is because we've established global institutions who've come up with those sorts of recommendations. We shouldn't do the wrong thing just because everybody else is. Mm. Um, but the, the, clearly, the kind I, I hear time and again that the kind of advice the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State for Health get is, well, everybody else is doing vaccine passports. To which my answer is, well, I'm not doing it just because they are. I'm not doing the wrong thing just because they are. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, e- e- there, there are even countries that have pre- previously introduced them and then sort of reversed their introduction. And, and uh, Portugal is an example of doing that. There are others that simply haven't introduced them at all but on the basis that there isn't enough scientific evidence to prove their value. So based on that, why, why would the Prime Minister still consider their implementation? And especially after there's been such a disastrous rollout of them in Scotland. Well, I don't think he has any desire to introduce them. But what I recognise is that prime ministers, contrary to popular opinion, uh, prime ministers are not entirely free to issue whatever instructions they wish. You know, the the state is a very large machine with a number of very, very powerful stakeholders in it. And the prime minister receives a great deal of advice and has an extremely complex and very large nexus of stakeholders to keep satisfied. And I think that we are in the position we are because it's a balance which satisfies his various stakeholders, including parliamentarians like like me. So I don't think we're going to get vaccine passports in the UK, but that's partly, I don't mind saying that, is partly because people like me have uh, made it absolutely clear we won't stand for it. Uh, But also I think that the data doesn't, even on their own terms, the data doesn't justify them either. You know, modelling now for what it's worth tells us that cases are going to fall off. Well, let's move away from uh, looking at lockdown restrictions. And uh, I'd like to ask you briefly about Brexit. Now, so some of the key features of the budget are as a result of leaving the European Union, such as the reforms to alcohol duties and tonnage taxes. But overall, I, I don't think we've seen many of the Brexit dividends the Vote Leave campaign promised in 2016 so far. Is Brexit turning out how you thought it would? Well, I don't think any of us expected immediately after the general election, which resolved questions about Brexit, that we would, within a few months, be plunged into this enormous lockdown crisis. And there's only so many crises that the state can handle at a time. I mean, realistically, the civil service, the state, was totally consumed with preparing to leave the European Union, and then shortly afterwards got totally consumed with coping with coronavirus. And so I'm not surprised that we haven't found time to embark on domestic regulatory reform on any scale. 
Uh, but Brexit is basically turning out as I expected. We did a deal. That deal actually is broad and wide ranging, notwithstanding people's criticisms of it. It's not like being in the customs union, but that's part of the point of leaving. And we have done loads of trade deals. I mean, it's extraordinary the extent to which we're succeeding in changing the terms of free trade around the world. We're, we've got a tilt towards the Indo-Pacific. We're going to be acceding to the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. We just concluded a, an agreement with New Zealand. Um, you know, it's a small economy, but the point is not the size of the economy. It's the fact of changing the way that free trade is going to work in the world. And what I wanted from Brexit was to deliver free trade without political unaccountable centralisation of power. The EU delivers free trade insofar as it does deliver free trade by, by, by delivering political harmonisation. And what I want is free trade without political harmonisation. So Brexit is working out on a grand strategic way, the way I expected. And even on a micro way, things like we've got a threat today that the, the French might preserve, uh, provide less power in the interconnectors to the Channel Islands. Mm. But that just does tell you something is that power is still being provided through the interconnectors. So I'm afraid a lot of nonsense was talked about leaving the EU and how terrible it would be. And only today a senior MP came up to me who was on the other side of the argument. He said, Steve, congratulations, you were right about Brexit and how it should be done. Brexit's now not the top 10 issue for my constituents. Now, there'll be some people listening to this who are still furious, who still want to rejoin. But I have to say to them, most of our country men and women have now moved on and quite right to. And what we now need to do is come together, make this work, which can be done, and try and move forward in a spirit of goodwill. I don't do a lot of talking about Brexit anymore. But broadly speaking, yes, it is working out as I hoped. We do need to conclude the unfinished business of the Northern Ireland Protocol. That is in progress. Uh, and I'm hopeful and optimistic that we'll look back in five and ten years and wonder what all the fuss was about as we're rowing about something else. Mm -hmm. Well, throughout so many of those long Brexit battles in Parliament and in the country, you, you were at the centre for most, if not all, of those big moments. And in those many standoffs with Theresa May, her government and the, the Remain Majority Parliament, did you ever feel there was a point at which you thought Brexit simply might not happen at all and all those rebellions that you'd led simply could have been for nothing? Oh, yeah, often. But, you know, the, the, probably the, the low point was when I made the speech in which I referred to bulldozing Parliament into the river, which did get, did get some coverage in the press um, in a private meeting. <laughs> but you, you, you know people were very afraid of what leaving would mean but as I said at the time if you're not willing to walk away then you're capitulating not negotiating and the problem is we we didn't have the united resolve of the nation the one thing we really had to have after we voted to leave was the united and courageous resolve of the nation to leave and to regain control of our own law um, what is happening, and, and that, that wasn't present, and that was the origin of all our difficulties, I believe. What I know is now happening in Poland and Germany and elsewhere is that Poland in particular has declared itself uh, exempt from, e from the principle of sovereignty of EU law. That is incompatible with the treaties and unlawful. Germany has done very similarly. This is procuring a rule of law crisis in the EU, which even great advocates of European Union admit is now in progress. We at least had the clarity to openly say we don't want to be subject to EU law anymore and therefore we're leaving. Mm. But what's happening in Poland is they don't want to be subject to EU law, but they're staying. And actually the same in Germany. 
And it's very interesting to note that Germany is being treated quite differently to Poland because, of course, they're so powerful within the EU. But the, the remaining member states, it's not really for me to advise them, but I'm going to now, they need to make their mind up whether they want the system they've created or not. And if they do want the system that they've created, where EU law is supreme over their nation state's law, then they've got to stop whining about it and just suck it up and do it. And it's going to mean a transfer union whereby Germany ends up paying the bills of Spain and uh, Italy and Greece. And I don't think that the German people will like that very much. Um, I, I rather think that in a few years' time, we, it, on this trajectory that the EU currently has, then in a few years' time, we might have ended up going to the confederal arrangement that the ECR group, that the Conservative Party joined, was promoting. And the irony will be then, if we end up with a European Union of uh, of collaborating independent states not subject to a supreme eu law the irony is we might have ended up with the an eu that many people in the uk could have agreed to but um, <laughs> you know history works out in odd ways so I, I just want everybody to take seriously the words they have spoken about being friends and partners and going forward in a spirit of goodwill and that's going to be hard but we should do that and just briefly on the, the issue of Poland, of course, there has been much made of the rule of law issue and the, the sovereignty of EU law in Poland. Do you think the EU will follow through on its threats to Poland and possibly even look at expelling them from the European Union? I don't think I'll go as far as expelling them, because if there's one thing they want to do, it's expand and stay together. Uh, but I do think they will have to resolve it one way or the other. Uh, but whether they resolve, I mean, how do you force an EU member state to comply with the treaties if they really don't want to, particularly when the, the way they're not complying is to uh, refute the supremacy of the EU's institutions? So it, it could lead to a existential crisis of the EU, um, but it is a matter for them, not for me. I've had to comment on this before. But what I want is peace and prosperity for Europe. I, you know, I, I'm an old classical liberal. I want the brotherhood and sisterhood of all mankind, freely cooperating in voluntary institutions. And uh, at the moment, the EU is not satisfying people and will, I think, have to change. But I don't really think they'll throw Poland out, no. You've previously said that uh, Boris Johnson's Brexit deal is tolerable. Is yeah. something as important as the European Union withdrawal agreement being tolerable a strong enough reason to, to support it? It absolutely was. So in the circumstances we faced at the time, what I said was it was a tolerable path to a great future. The thing which made it tolerable was over, rather than any better, was overwhelmingly the Northern Ireland Protocol. It was always clear to me that the Northern Ireland Protocol would be unfinished business, and so it has proven. And provision was made in the agreement to replace it, and that is basically what needs to happen. But that's why we said it was tolerable. Basically, we agreed to that deal under duress. There were other parts of the withdrawal agreement we didn't like very much. But it, we were under a state of absolute political duress in the UK. And, and so we agreed, the Eurosceptics compromised and agreed to that deal so that we could move on as a nation. My goodness, I hope we never have to go through anything like it again as long as we live. I'd like to say that about the COVID crisis as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a tolerable path to a great future. And I think that things are working out broadly OK. Um, and the sooner we improve the Northern Ireland Protocol, the better. So to, to finish, as we leave the pandemic behind and we develop our post-Brexit agenda, is the UK now permanently a big state government or will it start to roll back the frontiers of the states once again? 
Well, it can't be permanently because I don't believe we can afford it to be permanent. So sooner or later, there will be some kind of financial crisis which will result in us being a smaller state nation. But at the moment, Boris's trajectory is clear. He's not creating Singapore on Thames, as people said or perhaps feared. Uh, what he's doing is is creating a, a really quite big government, high taxing state uh, that I don't like very much. Uh, and we'll just have to see how it works out. But it is what he wants to do. And we made him prime minister. And I'm afraid uh, I'm going to have to bear with it for some time yet. Okay. Steve Baker, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.